week 18, choose to be beautiful. So just to bring you up, because we have a lot of first-time guests, um, and uh, Song of Solomon is not exactly a popular book to teach out of in the church, um, but just to bring you up to date, there's two main characters in the Song of Solomon. There's the Shulamite woman, and there's King Solomon. The Shulamite woman is the bride. King Solomon is her beloved, the bridegroom. And what it is, it's a picture of the relationship between the bride, called the church, and the bridegroom, Jesus, God, right? It's a picture about a bride being married to her king. So when we, when we read this scripture, we're talking about an intimate relationship that God invites us into with him. Last week, I preached a message called Gardens and Banners, where basically we talked about that the way we should live should be like a banner over us that distinguishes us. This, I think I just made that up like uh, too, too long of a word. Distinguishes us, not just as common people of the world, but that when people see us and they hear us and they talk to us and they get to know us, they know whose we are. Amen? That a banner is over our life and that with that banner, there is a garden or the dwelling place of God that is hidden all around us and we can choose to align our thinking with the fact that there are hidden garden realities. There is, there is the reality of heaven all around us and we can choose to look at the world and see a fallen world, a condemned world, or we can choose to see a garden that simply needs to be tended to. And the Lord has redeemed us because his mission is to seek and save all that which was lost. All that which was lost is not just lost people. It's everything in the world. It's lost purpose. It's lost people. It's, it's, it's lost identity. Um, for some reason, we see the world and we can't wait for God to destroy it when all God really wants to do is redeem it. And he's called us to be the, the people that can help do that very thing. So in this idea, the Shulamite woman, in a moment, started to align her thinking because up to this point, she is trying to find her bridegroom because she never answered a knock on the door. And after a chapter of trying to find them and getting beaten up by the, the struggles of the, the outside world, she aligned her thinking and understood, wait a minute, I know exactly where my bridegroom is. I know where my husband is. He's out in the garden. And what we talked about was it's an alignment of thinking of you don't have to go find God. He's everywhere. The only thing you have to do is align your thinking with the truth that he's everywhere so you can begin to enter into an intimate relationship instead of trying to go seek him out. One of the worst things the church has done, especially in the South and Southern culture, is teach the idea of get to church to get God. And quite frankly, the church has become the place where God is least present sometimes. Is that, is that okay? Yeah, I'm getting thumbs up all over the place. Not this church. Y'all ain't laughing. Okay, we must have problems. It is the idea that God is all around and all we have to do is say yes. So at this point, the bridegroom starts to express his love for his bride because she's finally embraced it. She's finally gone back to the garden. And I'm going to go ahead and preface this. The immature people are going to laugh a lot at some of the scriptures tonight. Try not to. We're going to dive into this from a mature perspective. Because if you read Song of Solomon through a lens of simply um, an intimate place in the bedroom, we can totally miss the truth behind the scripture. 
So the Shulamite woman is coming to the bridegroom, and the king, King Solomon, starts to express his love for her. And this is how it starts out in Song of Song, chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your sandaled feet. Now that's kind of funny because, you know, when you're checking out a girl, the last thing you usually do is checking out her sandaled feet. Not that you should check out a girl. But this is where he's going. He's like, hey, hey girl, I like your feet. How beautiful are your sandal feet, O queenly maiden. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a skilled craftsman. There's the laughs. The Shulamite woman, first of all, is so identified in her new identity that she is now referred to not as just a bride, not as just a Shulamite woman or a woman. She is referred to as, O queenly maiden. She is identified as the king's counterpart bearing the very image of the king. She's no longer just a woman that he married. She's no longer just a woman that has come in from the fields. She is identified as, oh, queenly maiden. She bore the image of the king, not because she earned it, but because she finally started to understand that in the moment she was married to a king, she was invited to the garden. She was invited to walk with the king, not just as his follower, but as an equal, or as the scripture says, a co-heir. Ephesians 4, 24 says it like this. Put on, someone shout, put on. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. And I want you to, if you would, Michael, just leave these scriptures up as I, as I read them so people can really look at them. It says, put on a new nature. You are created to be not almost like God, not similar to God, but you're actually created to be just like God, truly righteous and truly holy. Put on. It's a decision. It's not earning the right to be. It's not becoming. Verse 20, 20 through 23 of Ephesians 4 actually says, listen, this is not about what you've learned. He says this is an intentional decision to throw away the old and put on the new. This woman had this new nature the moment the king embraced her as his. And at this point in the Song of Songs, she is now starting to put on a new nature. She says, oh, I can walk right into the garden. I don't have to wait for an invitation. I don't have to make sure that I'm fully prepared. I don't even have to know how to, to, to tend the garden. I don't even have to be able to identify what fruits are in the garden or what vegetables are in the garden. I just know that I can enter in the garden. Because it's not I want to earn my way. It's I am going to put on a new nature. I am going to put on a new self. And I think the church needs to realize that this new self we put on is just like God. God has no equal, equal enemy. He's already defeated the enemy. Yet the church has taught go to war just in case you lose when the truth is the enemy's already been defeated. The war is not fighting the enemy. The war is believing that he's actually done with. The battle is not I need to win a fight over the devil. The battle is I need to win the fight with myself to understand that there is no adversary that is worthy to oppose me because I am the Father. The Father's I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. The devil does not get to win battles because the battle is already done. 
put on this new nature, you are just as holy and righteous as God. That does not mean you think you are equal of God in the sense of you are uh, you get to tell God what to do. Equal in the sense of you look like him when you decide to put on a new nature, putting on a new self. And the church for so long has been taught that you need to become like God or become equal to God or become holy or become righteous by way of earning. But we need to unlearn that and realize the moment you were identified in a new birth, the moment you said yes to Jesus, your status in that moment became royalty. We as the bride in that moment became co-heirs with God and it is up to us to own it and put on the robes of right standing. The Bible calls them the robes of what? Righteousness. The moment you said yes to Jesus, you need to align your thinking with one place. I am my beloved's. I am heaven's royalty. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says like this, But we all... With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, this is what that this is what uh, the Scripture is saying. The veil has been removed. Okay, you have been you have been exposed to the truth of who God is, and He has seen who you are. Therefore, we can see the glory of God. And we're being transformed in that very same image. The way you're transformed, though, is when you start to take on a true identity. I'm already holy. I'm already righteous. He has perfected me. So I am going to choose to be transformed into my true identity that right now may be unseen. Because let's, let's be honest. The moment you're saved, it ain't like your life gets perfect. It ain't like the moment you're saved, you stop sinning. But what's truth is that the moment you're saved, he counts you unto right standing. He sees you as a holy vessel of God. And it's not I need to come to church to get the perfect attendance so I can be holy. No, no, no. It's you are holy. You're right. He loves you. And for the rest of your life, if you will put on that thinking and put on that new nature, the image that you are seeing will align with that truth. That's being transformed from glory to glory. There's a moment when you're saved where you went from death to life. That is walking into glory. Okay? And then the rest of your life is as you put on your new nature of I am holy, I am righteous, God loves me, I am perfected unto right standing, then there are moments when you win battles not because you're fighting the devil but because you're submitting your mind to a truth. And when you win that battle, that battle, you're transformed into a new level of glory. What does that mean? You no longer have a desire for something that took you out of that image. It's not I'm trying to manage my behavior of sin. It's I no longer have a desire to do that thing anymore because I align my thinking with a new nature. I'm putting on a new self. And because I am putting on a new self, I'm walking out of desires that took me into a fallen identity. Is this making sense? Okay. The veil has been removed. The transformation of your life into this image, the mirror image of God, begins when you put on robes that you don't think you're worthy of. Which is the mindset shift. You're worthy. Why are you worthy? 
Because He married you. He chose you. He didn't say, I sent my son to die for you so that you can feel bad about every sin the rest of your life. He sent his son to die for you to purchase your right to be made worthy. And he made you worthy so that you would start to understand who you truly are instead of feeling guilty about actions of false you. Okay? The king sees this bride as royal or the queen. Some versions actually say, or princely. And the way the king saw her as royal, he starts by saying, I see sandaled feet and rounded thighs like jewels. 1 Corinthians 12, 23, it's not up there. But it's, it tells us to clothe with care the less honorable parts of the body of Christ and to give them extra care and honor. It's interesting that the first thing he is drawn to is one of the most maybe parts of the body that are not the thing that would draw the natural eye. It's, and I was, as I was reading that, I was even thinking about the scripture that says that there is power in the tongue. We should give the most care to the smallest muscle we have, the thing that controls what comes out your mouth. It says to give extra care to the least parts of the body. Then in Ephesians 6, it says to put on the whole armor of God and clothe your feet, take care of your feet with sandals, which is a piece that you are fully prepared for the work of God. In the armor of God or the clothing of God that he says to put on, he says the thing you need to make sure that you take care of is to make sure you are clothed with a piece. That wherever you walk, you are walking in a peace that you are fully prepared for the work of God. Why is peace, knowing that you're prepared for the work of God, so important? Because when you're in the grocery store, or when you're at the gas station, or when you're with some friends, and the Holy Spirit says something to you, or you need to bless them, or you need to pray for them, you don't think, am I good enough? You have peace that you are, no matter what you just did in your car. Can we just get, can I, can I, we're right there. Like just because you listened to music two seconds ago that did not glorify God does not make you unworthy to go on the assignment. Right? That's, that's, that's a good way to put it. Thank you, Jesus. Why? Because he made you worthy because there's no way you could earn it yourself. And we talk ourselves out of so many assignments thinking that our sin is more powerful than his grace. So there's this call of to get your feet prepared. In Acts 12, Peter was in a prison once. Don't put it up yet. Maybe not just once, but there was one time that Peter was in a prison. The apostle James was just killed. And he, Peter was fastened with two, two chains to the ground. It says suddenly there was a bright light in the cell and an angel appeared. When the angel appeared, it says he wakes up Peter and says, get up. And when Peter got up, the chains fell off, and the angel said this to Peter in Acts 12, 8. The angel told him, get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now, put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. And when he did that, if you read the rest of the passage, it says Peter walked right out of the jail, and the whole time he thought it was a dream, not realizing it was reality. It's interesting that in the scripture, the angel says, put on your sandals and put on your coat. 
The word coat in the Greek, hemation, means robe. And the Hebrew, it actually means mantle. So the angel says, put on the sandals and get mantled for walking out of this prison. The angel didn't say, get out of here so we can get some new stuff. He says, put on the things that you've already been given. Put on what you're mantled for. I submit to you that your beauty is not trying to get your sin life right. Rather, put on what you're mantled for in the presence of your sin, which results in a life where sin desires become a thing of the past. You want me to say that again? Put on what you're mantled for in the presence of your sin, which results in a life where sin desires become a thing of the past. It's not let me get clean so I can do is I'm putting on the beauty of I am clean even though I'm doing unclean things. And because I am clean, when God says go and put on the sandals and get mantled up, I can say, yes, Lord. Okay? Adjust your mindset and put on peace that you are prepared and you're fully capable and put on robes knowing that you are the righteousness of God. And when you put these on, you begin to walk as royalty of heaven instead of just waiting to get there. You know, the, the, the thing in the church is that we get so focused sometimes on when am I going to get to heaven? When the entire commission is summed up in Thy kingdom come, they will be done on the earth as is in heaven. The great commission, I believe, summed up is simply this. God has done it all. He has given you everything you need. And all you got to do is shift it from the heavenly atmosphere to reality. That's why he said it's so important to control what you say. Because everything you say should be in agreement about bringing heaven to earth. So when you start saying, I can never be that, you're not in agreement with heaven anymore. Your agreement, you're in agreement with a fallen world. I do not accept my conditions as my reality. I accept my place in the garden as my reality. What garden? Walking in the cool of the day with the presence of God everywhere I go. You do not need to go to heaven and, to walk in divine identity. You walk in divine identity when you put on a new nature. You don't earn it. You don't get it one day, you have it. Put it on. In Ezekiel chapter 16, there's a passage called Jerusalem, the unfaithful wife. And basically, God speaking, he looks at the bride, the church, Jerusalem, and says, I wrapped your nakedness in a cloak. What is cloak? The robe, what you're mantled for. I married you. I washed off the blood. I gave you clothing. I gave you new shoes. There's that shoes again. I believe the Lord's telling y'all to give me new shoes. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Ne- I won't wear them. Flip-flops are okay, though. Necklaces, gold, great food, and it says you look like a queen. But then watch what happens in verse 14. Your fame soon spread throughout the world because of your beauty. I dressed you in my splendor perfected your beauty, says the sovereign Lord, but you thought your fame and your beauty were your own. So you gave yourself as a prostitute to every man who came along. Your beauty was theirs for the asking. We have to be careful to not let a status as co-heirs with Christ, as the image bearers of God, become something that we think we attained. Because when you think you earned it by way of a good life, 
you will begin to use your gifts and your abilities to promote you rather than serve him. And when that happens, you become a prostitute for many, or in the church, a hireling for the people. What God has given you is he has made you beautiful and he has given you gifts for his purposes, not prostituting your gifts to make yourself famous. Not prostituting your gift in order to get the promotion. Promotion is a blessing. It shouldn't be the goal. You mean to tell you how to get promotions at work? Treat your current job as if it's the only one you have. Because if your goal is only next, you won't manage right now appropriately. Okay, no one, okay. <laughs> I, I lived that life. I, I worked in, ministry, in youth ministry at a church for seven years, and the bulk of the ministry was cutting grass and trimming bushes, and I didn't even know how to, how to use a clipper at the time, didn't even know how to turn on a lawnmower. I had to learn how to pressure wash, and that resulted in thousands of dollars of carpet being replaced because I didn't know you couldn't pressure wash the carpet. It was really, really bad. <laughs> And it, it wasn't the greatest work environment. I got put down all the time. I was told I, I wasn't good at the job. And I'm thinking, well, then why do you have me doing this job? I mean, to me, that, they were the dumb ones, not me. But every day I went in, no matter how hard it was and no matter how bad I felt, I, I stewarded that thing as if it was the only thing I was ever going to have. And every day of saying yes resulted, I believe, in getting to a place where we are today having worship in this house. It, not that this was ever something in my vision the only thing back then was steward the moment he says don't use your gifts and your fame to promote you don't use your gifts and fame to get notoriety use your gifts to simply bring glory to the living God if people only know you by your gifts you've missed the point they should be knowing God by your gifts you are made beautiful to mirror his glory, not simply display yours. Because as you transform from glory to glory, it should be you're seeing this glory because I'm looking like the glory that I'm putting my eyes on. And when they see your glory, they don't say, oh, look how great you are. They say, look how good God is for you to be like that. And the people that know us can probably say amen to that. When you know people who you knew them at step one and you're trying to figure out how the heck they're managing step 45, it's because of being good stewards of every single step along the way. Not for your glory, not for your fame, but for his. So I want to read that verse one again of Song of Solomon. How beautiful are your sandaled feet, O queenly maiden. Again, it's I have peace that I am called to walk as a royal citizen of the kingdom right here right now. And he says, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a skilled craftsman. The literal translation reads like this. The joints of the thighs are like jewels put together by the work of a skilled craftsman. The joints of the thighs. So you got to make sure when you're reading translations, you're not just getting the easiest way to put together a sentence. It's, it literally reads, the joints of the thighs are, beautifully, are, are like jewels put together by the work of a school craftsman. There's a passage in Colossians that basically it talks about don't let people condemn you or your worship. 
And as it goes into this passage, this is what it says in verse 19. They are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with what? Its joints and ligaments, and it grows at God as God nourishes it. What's being praised here by the king is not necessarily the beauty of the thighs as much as the functioning of the joints. Healthy joints produce strength and motion. The king says, I see your walk, the feet, and I see the things that cause you to walk the way I created you to be, flowing like banners in the wind. I see your walk. I see how you're carrying yourself. And he says, it's not about the evidence of your walk. It's about you took care of all the joints that I put together that produced such walk. Religion makes you stiff with duties. Relationship causes you to move wherever God says to go in a moment. I know this really well because my left knee right now is, is horrible. I, I, some of you don't know this, but... I, um, I pick up trash every day. You know, I work for a, a man in this room. Um, he, you know, he's, I'm not going to say his name or anything, but make sure you go to Gary Rowden after the service and tell him you know, that he owes me thousands of dollars. Um, but no, he takes care of me. I pick up trash every day at Southbridge, and it's about an hour and a half to two hours of work, not a lot. But I'm on this cart, and I have this grabber, and I'm picking up trash, and for some reason... Uh, the way I get out is the same every day, so I'm putting pressure on this knee. And my knee is it's very stiff. It hurts. And if I'm walking, if I have to kind of jolt a little bit, I can tell you right now my knee ain't going to be happy. <laughs> but isn't that kind of the picture of the church? We get stiff in our routines, and the moment we need to make a shift, for some reason it causes the body to doubt, and we won't make a move. That hurt. <laughs> we won't make a shift. Because we're not taking care of every joint and ligament in the body of Christ. The joints and the ligaments that are, are the unseen things that Ephesians says, again, to give the most care to. You know, like, it's one thing to have great worship. But it's another thing to have great like, well, let's say, let's say it like this. It's great to have great music. I think we have phenomenal musicians. But you can have great musicians who don't know God up on the stage. So in that moment, are we stiff in music theory? Or can we shift with the leading of the Holy Spirit? You can only shift with the leading of the Holy Spirit if each musician actually has a relationship with him. Right? It's the same with every part of the house. It's not just let's get talent in. It's not let's get the best people for the job in. It's, hey, what are you gifted in? Let's grow that joint. Let's get that ligament healthy. I heard a leadership teaching say it like this once. Everyone that's trying to grow groups or organizations always try to find the people that are at 100% of their game. Great leaders find the people that are willing at 50% and grow them the rest of the 50. That's what the church is called to do. Gather together to equip the saints to equip the people of God for the work of ministry. It's not, I need to get there. It's get under leadership that is competent enough to help take you there with what you've got to offer right now. That's taking care of the joint. 
That's taking care of the ligament. Ephesians 4.16 says it like this. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. According to the effect of working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Make no mistake. You are needed. And I, I want to say that again because it seems casual, but I want to say you are needed. I don't know if it's for this house. I don't know if it's for another one. But make no mistake, there is something in you that the body of Christ needs. You are needed, and the gift he adorned you with is needed. So put on the shoes, put on the robes, and start walking. Because the body of Christ will only be as healthy when every joint is supplying something to the body. See, what we have missed in the church is every congregation member wants a healthy pastor. And you want the pastor to make sure he's doing everything he's supposed to do, which he should. Scripture is very clear. Hold, hold, hold the leader to double standard. Make sure he, is, he, is a, he or she is a person that's worthy of the calling and walking the walk and talking the talk and all those things. But what we've missed is we put all of our stock in that, not realizing that he or she is only as good as making sure every joint is supplying something. You are just as needed as me with the microphone. I'll say it in a better way. You are more needed than me with the microphone. Because Jesus says, I've given you these gifts to equip the body for the work of ministry. The apostle, the prophet, the teacher, the evangelist, and the pastor. It's not I've given you pastor to do the work of ministry. I've given you the pastor to help establish a foundation for you to do the work of ministry. So what does a great leader do? What does a body do? Recognize that every single person in this house is a joint or a ligament, and what you've got is needed for the health of the house, the health of the body, so that when people see us, they see the glory of God. Not a bunch of complaining people that we didn't get the precedent we wanted. Okay. Amen. I'm just going to leave that there. No, I'm not. Here's the thing. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going there. I'm not going there. Hmm. Song of Solomon 7, verse 2. Your navel is perfectly formed like a goblet. That's the weirdest thing I've ever read. Like husbands, you know, just go home to your wives. Girl, your belly button look like a fine glass of wine. <laughs> oh, that, that, ugh. So weird. Yeah. <laughs> Your, your, your navel is perfectly formed like a goblet filled with mixed wine. Between your thighs lies a mound of wheat bordered with lilies. Navel is like a goblet filled with wine. Wine is always symbolic of, if we will, a new wine or the flow of one person, Holy Spirit. What it's saying is out of your belly flows the fullness of the Spirit. Your navel is like a goblet filled with wine. Out of your belly, out of your being, out of yourself, I see the flow of God. Proverbs 3, 7 through 8 says this. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Everyone say, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Body translated from the original language is actually navel. 
It says it will be healing to your, to your navel and refreshment to your bones. What will cause the body of Christ to be identified as a healthy place where the fullness of the Spirit can flow? Not good religion. Fear the Lord. The king, God, will look at a bride and says, your navel is like a goblet of wine when he sees his bride letting the Holy Spirit flow however he needs to. And he says, you want to know how to get that perfect flow? Fear the Lord because it will be healing to your navel. Fear of the Lord will be healing to the place where Holy Spirit can't flow. What will cause the body of Christ to be identified as a healthy place for the fullness of the Spirit to flow is not good religion, it's fear of the Lord. What is fear of the Lord? It's not I'm scared of God. It's I fear a reality absent of his likeness. It's I don't want to make a decision that takes me out of the likeness of God. So I fear the Lord in the sense of I fear life without God. It's an honor of I fear the reality of life without God so much that if God says it, I fear him enough to say yes because I don't want to be out of step. When you, when you are healthy and appropriate fear, the king says... Between your thighs lies a mound of wheat bordered with lilies. Or you're ready for birthing a harvest. Because lilies are on the borders. What are the lilies of the field? Sons and daughters of God. So he's saying, you are ready for birthing a harvest... Because the sons and daughters of God who are with you are being nurtured by your righteousness. They're experiencing the flow of the Spirit, so they're lined up because what's coming out of you is nurturing a hunger in them that they've been trying to fill forever. And the lilies of the field are starting to gather, and they're getting nurtured. And he's saying, you are ready to go get them. You are so walking in beloved identity that your walk is feeding the lilies, a wheat harvest, a gathering of people, or the kingdom of God. Matthew 9, 37 says it like this. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. What are the workers? Simply this. People or a remnant of people, the children of God, who fear him to such a degree that we are living a life in flow of Holy Spirit, which actually is bringing nourishment to all that surround us. If, you're, if you have a healthy fear of God, you will start to nurture the lilies in every sphere of your influence. Every person you come in contact with Monday through Friday, they will be nurtured because what's flowing out of you is flowing from your fear of the Lord. And they no longer see someone who's easily offendable, they no longer see someone with a temper tantrum. They no longer see someone who can't handle stress. They, they're trying to figure out how are you doing this. And you can say, I'm making decisions in line with my father. And because I make those decisions, something is flowing out of me that's causing you to line up. 
healthy harvesting is actually fruit of the fear of the Lord, resulting in appropriate flow of the Spirit of God in the church. Healthy harvesting is actually simply the fruit of the people that fear God, resulting in the appropriate flow of the Spirit of God. <clears throat> Song of Psalms, chapter 7, verse 3. Your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle. The church being a healthy place is to nourish the people. Everything being birthed from a healthy body, giving nourishment and food for living. What does a mama do when she has a baby? She, she nourishes the baby with what? Her breasts. So he's saying you are producing something that is giving nourishment, and he keeps on. He says but between your thighs is like a harvest of wheat, and he, says, and he says, your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of gazelles. So some theologians would even say the two fawns actually represent law and grace. That, it's a that both law and grace is fulfillment to the soul, spirit, and body. Truth that is pure and sane. Jesus even says, I have not come to abolish the law, I have come to fulfill it. It has things that will nourish you just as much as grace nourishes you. And we fall in love with what God calls law when we realize that it's simply a way of him to say, fear me or fear a life absent of these ways. And what grace does is say, if you get law wrong, it doesn't take away your identity as worthy and righteous and holy and pure. So the law is fulfilled in that not getting the law right no longer defines who you are but it doesn't mean there's nothing good about the law. Think about laws. You reap what you sow. You, whether you believe God or not, that's true. Some people call it what? Karma. You reap what you sow. What you plant is what you get. That is a law. And the grace of Jesus says, I'm going to take that law, and you're going to be able to use that to shift realities of heaven into the earth. So I don't, I, I, I hate to get on this, but I'm going to. It's no longer I need to tithe so God will be pleased. It, because if you don't tithe, God doesn't love you less. But it is if I work this law and sow into what God says, I fear a reality of what my finances or my life would look like outside of this law being done. Not because I'm trying to get it all right, but because my response to him is, this is what you want? Yeah. This is what you want? Yeah. This is what you want? Yeah. Because you fear a reality absent from the Father. Does this make sense? A bride or the beauty of the church is a church so identified in beloved identity that we look like him and we nourish like him. So we honor the ways of God. Then it says in verse 4, Your neck is as beautiful as an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the sparkling pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabban, Raven, something. Your nose is as fine. That's funny. Your nose is fine. Your nose, your nose is as fine as the tower of Lebanon overlooking Damascus. He says, just leave that up there. He says, your neck is beautiful. What is the neck? It's the thing that connects us to the head, right? Christ. Ivory tower. 
tall and long. It's communicating, I see your nobility and I see your character. Your eyes, he says, are like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Beth Robin. The, the gate of Beth Robin literally means the daughter of a multitude. So what he's saying is, your intentions are clean and clear like these ponds, and they're seen by the multitudes. Your eyes are like the pools. Your intentions are seen. It's clear what you're doing. I can see in your eyes who you worship. I can see in your eyes what you're about. I see your intentions. They're very clear. And that's a hard thing in the church because we always question people's intentions. We need to get to a place in life where we are fearing a reality absence of God so no one ever has to question the intention. And when someone questions the intention, don't get offended. Look and see if the, if the water is a little cloudy. That's called accountability. Okay. Your nose is fine as the Tower of Lebanon. Your fa- what, what was going on with the Tower of Lebanon? You face the enemies coming toward you instead of running from them. Because you're not scared to discern what's of God and what's not of God. You're in a, the nose is likened to animals smelling to discern or judge if something's good or not. You ever seen a dog smell something? They either, and they stay or, and they turn away. It's likening the this, this, this sense or of smell to, to discernment. You're, you see, a healthy church and a healthy bride can look right at the enemy and know if this is God or if it's the enemy. We can look right at the enemy and discern the schemes instead of running away because you think a demon has more powerful than your seated position. If you see things that go bump in the night, how dare you run from them, speak from them, or speak to them. I'm a child of God. You've got no place here. You don't have to shout for 45 minutes if you truly believe that statement. People who shout for 45 minutes are trying to convince themselves, not the demon. It's, I believe that I am a child of God. When you believe you're a child of God, you believe that you are the royalty of heaven. And you know what happens with royalty? When a king or a queen speaks, all the subjects have to obey. And even Satan has to go to God to get permission. Read Job. You want to know why the church loves religion? Because without a true fear of God, our character and our discernment and our intentions, remember the neck, the eyes, and the nose, are all can be easily defiled. And we fear missing it rather than fearing God so much that we're willing to go into uncharted waters knowing that, our, that we have the character and discernment that will cause us to never miss it. You know what religion is? We're protecting ourselves because we're too scared to try something new. Instead of being so identified in Christ that you don't question your discernment because it flows from relationship. By the way, is this okay? Okay. The pools of Heshbon, as it says in the scripture, it literally translates, listen to this, fertile thoughts. It says your eyes are like the sparkling pools in Heshbon. Are your thoughts those that produce the things of God or keep you stuck? 
And oftentimes what your thoughts are is where you put your eyes to. Where you focus your vision directly affects the fertility of your mind. That's why scripture says set your eyes or set your mind on things above. Because our thought life should be the very thing that produces the things that God wants for us. That's why he continually says be renewed by the transformation of your mind. Because if you can align your mind with heaven realities, that's where reality birthing comes from. Habakkuk says it over and over. Write the vision down. Make it plain so that you never shift where your eyes are. And if your eyes are on the vision that God gave you, your thoughts are the thing that are fertile and producing. Because every action will follow the flow of your thought life. The moment your thoughts go to, I can never do it, you're no longer fertile. That's speaking to someone in here. I think it's speaking to many in here. Verse 5. Your head is majestic as Mount Carmel. The sheen of your hair radiates royalty. The king is held captive by its tresses. The thing about Mount Carmel, it was a very high hill near the sea. A high hill. It's talking about where you're putting your eyes, where you're putting your thought life. Psalm 27, 6 says, I will hold my head high above my enemies who surround me. At a sanctuary, I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy, singing, and praising the Lord with music. The question is, where is your headspace? Is it above the storm? Is it above the issue? Is it above the, the thing coming against you? Or are you under it or even right with it? Because a church in fear of the Lord looks up and aligns our thinking with heaven, heavenly realities, not the cares of this world. And a lot of times we lose battles because where we put our eyes is in the middle of the fight instead of looking down on the fight. The best strategy from God is when you start looking at the battle from the appropriate position. If you set your mind on things above, he's going to tell you things that don't make sense that are actually the most appropriate to win your battle. Like you have a battle with a coworker at work, and all you can see is, I have this issue, and I'm tired of dealing with this person, and I don't want to go to work Monday because that person's going to be on shift. The Lord says, you're looking at the issue from the wrong position. If you set your mind on heavenly places and look down, you might get a word like, Bless that coworker on Monday. And then for some reason, the rest of your week, that issue is no longer an issue. Because he says, I will use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Don't depend on your wisdom. Depend on his. A church in the fear of God looks up. Aligns our thinking with heavenly realities. It says, hair radiates royalty. The king being held or captive by its tresses. The tresses simply means watching the hair flow. He says, your head is majestic. In other words, the king is looking at his bride and saying, you are crowned with royalty. Your head, your hair, I see a crown. The scripture specifically says we're crowned with with." Many things, but here's three things that I want to bring to your attention. It says he crowns us with righteousness, glory, and life. 
These should describe your life. Choose that beauty and settle for nothing less. Choose to be beautiful. I'm going to put on a new nature. What is my new nature? I am royalty. I am the king's. I am the mirror image of the glory of God. When you start to actually believe that, you will start to fear every decision that does not align with God. Not because you think you're going to lose your royalty, but because you don't want to enter into that reality. Look at verse 6. Oh, how beautiful you are, how pleasing my love, how full of delights. You are slender like a palm tree. Your breasts are like clusters of fruit. I said, I'll climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like grape clusters and the fragrance of your breath like apples. May your kisses be as exciting as the best wine. Yes, wine that goes down smoothly from my lover, flowing gently over lips and teeth. These three verses carry a theme of one thing, taking delight. She, he says, my love, you're full of delights. You're slender, you're straight, you're upright. And the king says, I see this upright or righteous person full of fruit that I want to climb and take hold of. You know what the king is saying? He's saying, I want communion with this righteous bride of mine who is bearing fruit in her life. God wants to commune with the people full of praises on the lips and producing fruit from a life with him. You ever feel distant from God? It's not that he isn't close. Are you putting on the beauty of a bride that the king actually wants to commune with? You want to know how you put the title up there, Michael, choose to be beautiful? You choose what comes out your lips so that the king wants to be with that delightful thing. You choose where you put your mind to. You choose your identity in Christ. You put on that new nature so that everything that produces out of you, the king takes delight in. And you'll start, you'll start to, well, I just feel like God's distant. Check your lips. Where's the fruit? Are you living a life that the king actually wants to commune with? I wonder sometimes if the king or God looks at us and asks, do we carry the taste of the best wine, which is the spirit of God? Do people look at us and ask, are we carrying the taste of the best wine, the spirit of God? Or is all you're carrying a taste of a corrupted flesh and a corrupted mind? Because all they see from the fruit of your lips is nothing like the light. And after all these accolades of beauty, the woman finally responds. And look at what she says in verse 10. <clears throat> I am my lover's, and he claims me as his own. You know how much she's missed it in this chapter, in this whole book? Over and over and over. And the one thing when she finally realizes I'm my lover's and he claims me is because when she starts to understand who she is, he says that. God, God says, that's what I want to commune with. That's what I want to walk with. She says, come, my love, let us go out to the fields and spend the night among the wildflowers. Let us get up early and go to the vineyards. Someone say vineyards. 
let us get up early and go to the vineyards to see if the grapevines have budded. This, this is powerful. I'm going to read that again. Let us get up early and go to the vineyards to see if the grapevines have budded. If the blossoms have opened and if the pomegranates have bloomed. There, I'll give you my love. There, the mandrakes give off their fragrance and the finest fruits are out at our door. New delights as well as old, which I have saved you for, my lover. She finally gets it, number one. I am my beloved's and my beloved's mine. The word here for beloved translates hand in hand. She finally understood that she's invited to a walk that is hand by hand with God. And her response is, let us go to the fields. She responds with, you want communion with me? I want communion with you. So God, let's go. Let's go to the fields. She says, let's go to the vineyards. And the reason she wants to go to the vineyards is because she wants to see if the grapevines have budded. She wants to see if the blossoms that have opened. She wants to see if the pomegranates have, have bloomed. In other words, she's going to check, has anything produced from what I've planted? I think some of y'all missed that. You see, a lot of times we sow seed into the world whether it be by a tithe, whether it be by a, a whisper of in, introducing someone to Jesus, whether it be a, a, a someone you're speaking life into. And you know what we almost never do? We never go back to see, is there anything producing? There's actually a parable that Jesus taught about vineyards. Now, at the very end of the parable, this is what I'm closing with tonight, in Matthew 21, this is what Jesus says in verse 43. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces. It will crush anyone that falls on it. But watch this. When the leading priests and the Pharisees or the religious people heard this parable, they realized he was telling the story against them. They're the wicked farmers. You know what that means? You know who the people are that he's taking the vineyards away from the religious and giving it to? The church. We are the vineyard keepers. So God says, I want you to walk with me. I see you as beautiful. I see you as perfect. I see you as righteous. He says, when you start to believe that and you start to take on an identity as a spotless bride, when you actually start to understand your worth in the kingdom, he said that the proper response is walk with me so we can tend to everything that's been planted. We contend to the children who are getting baptized tonight to make sure they are growing up in the ways of God. We contend to the people who, for some reason, they hadn't been at church in three or four weeks. And instead of you coming to me to ask Pastor Kyle where they had been, maybe you should already know the answer. Amen. Amen. Don't worry, that hasn't literally happened. I'm just talking. Maybe it has, I don't know. But we're at a place where we're looking at what's producing. Well, Pastor Kyle, the worship used to be powerful and it's getting kind of, kind of distant. What's going on? Maybe you should stop looking to the team and start looking at a mirror image of what you're reflecting. You see, we always want someone to do the work for us, but we never check to see, 
Is anything producing in my life? Are the things that God has given me producing? Is the vision God has given me, is it coming to pass? Or am I finding reasons as to why the vision is not coming to pass instead of just realizing I have not tended to the vision? Have you given the time to check what you planted? Or are you consumed in what others are producing? You see, what happened in this parable is that the priests and the religious figures that Jesus was talking about, they were, they were, they were given a call to plant, and when they saw someone coming from the garden, someone with more crops and more fruit, the people in the parable murdered him and took the crops. And Jesus is saying, I'm not looking for religious people who want to murder them and get their fruit. I'm looking for a people who are going to check into what I have called them to plant. Because make no mistake, you are called to produce something. The danger is when you're comparing what you're producing with what someone else is producing. Focus on what God has called you to do. He gave you a gift. You want to know why? Because you are a joint that supplies the need that you are called and predestined to supply. It's not why is this not happening. It's God, I want to walk hand in hand with you because when I walk hand in hand with you, we are going for a walk in the garden. We are going for a walk to see what's been planted and you're going to show me what I need to tend to because I'm no longer looking for my pastor to keep the garden. I am going to start tending to it. Jesus came to give an authority to us as keepers of the vineyard. So let us be a people walking hand in hand that produces all we need for this life and for God to get glory and save which that was lost. You want to know how the world is going to be found? When we start tending to the garden. And it all starts with you need to choose to be beautiful. I will put on my new nature and no longer come up with excuses as to why I'm not walking into the next season of my life. Put on the new nature. Choose to be beautiful, not by earning, but by giving glory to the one who purchased it for you. You're beautiful. So my commission for tonight is let the world see what true beauty is all about. Amen.